Welcome to Trust Issues, a podcast by Kepler Trust Intelligence. Please be aware that there can be a time lag when we release podcasts, meaning time-sensitive information may no longer be accurate at the time of publication. Also note that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results. The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and you may get back less than you invested when you decide to sell your investments. It's strongly recommended that if you are a private investor, independent financial advice should be taken before making any investment or financial decision. Finally, Kepler Partners LLP has a relationship with the company covered in this podcast, which may impair its objectivity. We hope you enjoy the programme. Hello everyone and welcome back to Trust Issues. Today I'm joined by Elizabeth Quick. Elizabeth is the manager of the Aberdeen China Trust. So Elizabeth, thanks very much for joining me all the way from Hong Kong. Very early morning here in the UK <laughs> recording. Um, so so you, are, you, you are not new to Aberdeen. I think you've been there for about a decade now, but the trust uh, is quite new. So I think it was formed at the end of 2021. So for someone that's not familiar with the trust um, and what it does, can you talk a bit about some of its key features um, what you do just just simple intro for someone that's not doesn't know it yep um, good morning thanks for having me um, yeah so as you say um, this is the you know Aberdeen China investment company um, and the aim of the trust is really to seek long-term capital growth um, through investing uh, in Chinese equities so um, for this trust we have access to the full opportunity in China meaning that we don't restrict ourselves to companies listed, you know, either offshore in Hong Kong or elsewhere or onshore in China. We are able to invest um, in, in, you know, all Chinese companies, regardless of place of listing um, or sector, um, you know, just because we want to provide, uh, you know, everyone with the full opportunity set. Um, We run this trust um, with a large investment team um, doing on the ground research Uh, The team at Aberdeen have been investing in China for over 30 years. So we have a very strong footprint here. Um, You know, the the China team is based in Hong Kong, Singapore, and we have also members in Shanghai. Um, So doing firsthand research is really important to to our investment process. Um, And um, as part of our philosophy, we also have a strong emphasis on ESG and stewardship. Um, We we manage this trust actively. Um, We focus on bottom-up stock selection. Uh, and the result of all of this is, you know, a high conviction, high quality portfolio with, you know, just under 60 best ideas. Um, we are a consumption focused, um, you know, investment trust uh, that, that has come as a result of our bottom up stock selection. Um, and as I say, you know, we, we want to provide everyone with the full opportunity to get the best of Chinese equities. Okay, well, that all sounds very good. Um, you've touched on a couple of things there, which I think might give some hints as to the answer to the next question. But um, can you talk a bit about what your investment process looks like? So um, when you're looking to build that portfolio of you know, the, the fairly concentrated portfolio, what, what are some of the features you look for in a given company? Yeah, so, um, you know, as bottom-up you know, stock selectors, uh, our investment philosophy is really what we call quality. Um, we we believe that quality investing works because um, you know it gives fewer tail risks, gives investors a greater margin of safety. Um, we look for companies with less volatile earning streams. Um, so you know, meaning earnings which are more resilient and sustainable. 
And this puts us in a better position to navigate, you know, the changes and the uncertainties that we see, you know, on a day-to-day basis. So when it comes to quality, um, the way that we define quality is really uh, five main criteria. The first one is we look for companies that have a sustainable competitive advantage. Um, We want companies that are best in class, that have a strong moat, that are able to weather, you know, different economic cycles um, and are able to take advantage of, you know, tough times to consolidate um, and to continue to build their moat. Uh, so that can be, you know, um, brand equity. It can be in distribution. Um, it can be in in the in the management. So we look for, you know, all these factors in defining a sustainable competitive advantage. Um, the second factor when we look at quality is really an attractive industry. Um, you know, aside from the company being a strong, uh, having a strong moat, we still want the company to be in an attractive industry, one that is showing good growth. Um, one that is supported by government policy. We don't want to be faced with, you know, a lot of headwinds on that front. Um, So an attractive industry characteristic is very important to us as well. Um, The third thing that we look at is the financials of a company. Um, We believe that, you know, companies with strong balance sheets and strong cash flow generations, these are important indicators to us of whether a company will be able to weather the tough times. Um, and it also reflects, you know, how things are being managed. So a company which has been able to deliver consistently strong margins, better than peers, this is an indicator of a quality company to us. Uh, the fourth factor is management execution and track record. Um, so having a strong management team at the helm of the business is important. Um, these are the guys who are providing, you know, vision, strategic direction for the company to be able to make the, the key decisions in um, you know, throughout, you know, economic cycles. So looking for people we we can trust um, is especially important in China. And then the fifth factor, um, which I touched on a little bit earlier, is, is ESG. Um, you know, we think that this is something that's financially material to companies in China. And I know, you know, many listeners, they might, you know, have a follow-up question of, you know, is ESG investing possible in China or what does it look like? And I would say that, you know, having been looking at Chinese companies for 10 years now, um, there's definitely been a huge improvement on this front. Companies are very much willing to listen and to learn. Um, And so if you look at the type of disclosures that are being released by, you know, companies, um, it has come a long way and they're increasingly receptive to, um, you know, being educated by investors. So these are the five factors that that we look at when we look for quality um and that's how we select you know the best the best in class um in china so another i mean reading through our latest uh, research note on the trust which I, I recommend listeners go and have a read of after after we've done listening to this uh you you so it's clear some themes do emerge from the bottom-up process you use so you're not you're not deliberately picking themes but via that process they emerge um You've put those in, I think, into five categories: so aspiration, digitalization, green, health, and wealth. Um, I think it'd be quite a lot for us today to go through all of them. But I think if we touch on on th- a few of them, it would still be it would kind of give give listeners an idea of, of what you're doing and, and sort of what what the themes are. Uh, so to start with aspiration, I think that's that has the biggest weighting in the portfolio. Uh, can you talk through? What that means, uh, I think listeners might have a sense from from the term. But what does what does aspiration mean? What sort of companies are these? Yeah. So um, yeah. So when we when we talk about aspiration, 
Um, I think this is reflected in the trust's overweight to both the consumer staple sector as well as the consumer discretionary sector. Um, both these sectors are uh, quite wide ranging. They have a number of subsectors within them. But I think the overarching theme is that we see that rising affluence in China is leading to a fast growth in premium consumption. So this includes areas um, such as cosmetics, travel, food and beverage, um, basically um, everyday spending. Um, and we see that across these um, areas, the average Chinese consumer is getting more wealthy and they want to upgrade their standard of living and quality of life. Um, we do see this as a structural trend. We don't think it's you know something that will only last you know for one year. Um, but I think China's consumer market is being reshaped. Um, the middle class continues to rise. So we're seeing double digit growth of the upper and upper middle and high income households in China. And these are the groups that are really powering this consumption growth. Um, and, you know, these are people with annual incomes of over 160,000 RMB. Um, and over the next three years, I think the forecast is for China to add another 71 million people within this group. Um, so very strong driver coming from this, this part of the population. Um, and as I say, they're not just um, spending, but they're really trying to upgrade, to premiumize. And we're seeing this momentum continue. Um, you know, customers are continuing to prefer premium brands over mass brands. So if you look at what's been doing well, even throughout COVID, um, when, you know, people were facing more, more challenges when it comes to income or, or even employment, we still see that premium brands have outperformed mass brands. Um, you know, when, when they're trying to reward themselves, they're still willing to trade up. Um, and a lot of, I think what's interesting is that a lot of these premium brands, they, you know, once upon a time, you know, five, 10 years ago, the impression was that foreign brands or international brands were much more attractive than domestic Chinese brands. But I think that is also starting to change. Um, we're seeing a huge number of, you know, more trendy and innovative local brands um, emerge. For instance, in the cosmetic space, we're seeing this. Um, and these are gaining market share. So Chinese brands are gaining market share from, you know, Japanese, Korean brands in the sort of middle to upper um, segment of the market. So I think that's um, an interesting trend that we're seeing. Um, and I think overall, this is, you know, this consumption upgrade is something that we think is here to stay, um, especially now that things are reopened in China. Um, we do think this is a very promising trend. Um, so that that's why we continue to have, you know, um, overweight to the consumer staples and consumer discretionary sectors. Okay, well, that all sounds very interesting. So we'll move on to the next theme, uh, which is digitalization. I think that most people who are familiar or in, with China or invest in China are going to be familiar with some of the bigger names, so it's Alibaba, Tencent, JD. Now, assuming you can actually discuss them, uh, are there any other companies um, or sectors that would fit within the digitalization theme, um, which you find compelling and that you, you would think investors should be aware of today? Yep. So when, when we talk about the digital theme, I think the, the names that you mentioned, Alibaba, Tencent, JD, these are um, very, very much known by the market um, and, you know, they're good companies. But I think when we talk about, you know, digital or IT as a whole in China, um, we actually go beyond just these large e-commerce names. Um, we're seeing, you know, growing integration amid the widespread adoption of technology in China means, you know, there's a very bright future for not only e-commerce players, but also um, companies in areas such as cybersecurity, 
uh, or in data centers supporting cloud services, which are increasingly being adopted in China. Um, so this really gives us a wide range of opportunities, um, and most of these fall within the IT software space. Um, I think generally um, China is investing a lot in their digital um, market. Um, so I think you know IT software is something that you know investors you know would be interested in because they're uh, much less known by the market. Many of these companies are listed onshore in China. Um, starting out as you know maybe a mid cap company, but um, they have a lot of potential. Okay, well, another factor here is is valuation. So I think if you looked in what two years ago, let's say you had very just yeah very high forward PE ratios. It, it was very similar, I would say, to the US, right, where tech just seemed had had gone on this massive rally, and then for whatever reason, the pandemic seemed to make it just go into overdrive. So you had just really eye-watering valuations where it was sort of seemed hard to hard to justify uh, that that the price share prices i mean first of all do you think that's a, that's a fair analysis and can you talk a bit a bit about the state of play today i mean I, I that's quite a lot has changed in that in the intervening period so what devaluations in the sector look like yeah so i think we had a bit of a similar case in china to what you just described um, you know, things were looking relatively more expensive back then. Um, but in the last two years, and especially the last one year, we have seen a huge correction in Chinese um, tech valuations. I think part of that came from the global tech correction, as you just mentioned. But, you know, for China, they also had more specific, um, you know, reasons, including domestically regulators were taking um, quite a harsh stance on some of these companies and there was a lot of uncertainty as to what this meant for the future of tech companies in China. Um, I think the good thing now is that we are we've we've reached you know close to the end of this um, period of regulatory tightening. Um, that's what the officials have come out to acknowledge as well. Um, but at the same time valuations have not re rebounded to the levels that they were trading at. Uh, I think, you know, this is reflective of, um, you know, investor caution or skepticism after what um, we've we've seen. But uh, I think we can conclude that China is very much in favor of these tech companies, um, given the, their importance to the economy, um, not just in terms of, you know, employment, um, but also in terms of innovation. Um, so if you look at, you know, the index as a whole, I think not just for tech, but for China, the MSCI China All Shares is trading at about 15 times. Um, and that is still below the two-year historical average. Um, tech names in China more specifically are trading, you know, one to one and a half standard deviation below their two-year historical average. So valuations are definitely attractive. Um, and I think given that we've reached the end of this regulatory cycle for them, um, you know, they, you know, this could be a very interesting time to look at some of these companies. Okay, well, I think another another problem people might have here beyond valuations is something you've touched on in your answer, which is some of the regulatory changes or, or what, to be honest, felt a bit more like crackdowns uh, that we've seen, seen in China over the past, let's say, two years. Um, so, I mean, can you talk about what the thinking behind some of those was? And also, I mean, if, if, you, if I'm someone who, who is fearful that maybe this is going to continue or, or, you know, that similar things will happen moving forward, is there anything you could do to allay my fears? I mean, is there anything you see where you think this is unlikely to happen again? Yeah, so I think 
one of the key reasons for you know a very sudden um, regulatory crackdown, as you say, was the fact that a lot of these companies, so if you look at the likes of Alibaba, JD, Tencent, they have been growing over the last 10 years at a very rapid pace. They have become you know, the top um, the top companies in the MSCI China indices. They um, have huge amount of influence in society. Um, everyone in China uses WeChat, shops on Taobao. Um, so meaning, you know, they collect a lot of um, user data as well. And I think the concern from the regulator's perspective was that um, over this, you know, period of fast growth, there, there really wasn't much regulatory, much of a regulatory framework in place. So these, these companies were basically able to grow and evolve as, as they saw fit. Um, but I think... So, so I think it's only fair that at some point the regulator would need to step in to make sure that, you know, user data is being, you know, handled appropriately, that these firms were playing within a reasonable framework. Um, and I don't think it's unique to China. So if you look back a few years, we saw, you know, similar regulatory attention, you know, being given to Amazon, to Google, to Facebook. So it's not unique to China. But I think for China, I think that was the main driver of that. You know, the reason that the market was so surprised by what happened was because of the way that these regulations were implemented. Um, You know, a lot of the government officials were um, implementing them without much warning. Um, they, They seemed to be a bit overzealous in the way that they were enforcing these things without um, you know, much explanation. So that left a lot of room for speculation and uncertainty as to what, what was driving this and how long it would last. But I think for, you know, when you look at where we are now, I think we, we have definitely um, come towards the end of that period. I think the framework is in place. Most of the large fines or changes have already been handed out to these companies. And, you know, some very senior government officials have also come out to say that you know, we shouldn't expect a similar degree of regulatory tightening, um, you know, coming, you know, in the coming months or, or even years. So I think that should allay some concerns. Uh, I think from time to time, we may still see, you know, small tweaks. Um, but I think at least now investor expectations have been reset. And we know that, um, you know, they, they are very much in favor of innovation and to partner with these private tech companies rather than some of the earlier concerns, which was that, maybe they didn't like these companies or the role that they were playing in the economy. But I think we can safely say that that's not the case. Okay, so I think another factor here that people get concerned about is is competition with the US. Um, thinking about semiconductors in particular, which because of sanctions by the US, it's becoming much harder for Chinese firms to access cutting edge technology in that sphere. Um, and I think in general, there's a sense that U.S.-China competition may just make life harder for investors in Chinese companies. Um, so do you have any thoughts around that? Do you think that's something that people are right to be concerned about? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think um, U.S.-China tensions are a valid concern for investors. I think that they are here to stay. Um, and it doesn't look like you know a simple issue that can be resolved in the near term. But at the same time, as a result of this tension... Um, China has become very aware that they need to be much more self-sufficient on a few fronts, in particular on the energy side and on the technology front. Um, And this is why the term innovation has been mentioned in China so so frequently um, in, you know, some of the key policy addresses in recent months. And the government has been coming up with a lot of policies to support things like electrification of electric vehicles, renewable energy, um, 
to you know make themselves less dependent on foreign energy sources and foreign technology. Um, I think China has made significant achievements on this front. So if you look at the global supply chain, um, solar supply chain market share, China contributes close to 80% of this. And it's a similar number for electric vehicles and batteries. Um, so I think this has really pushed China and really sped up their timeline and the urgency to innovate, to make themselves more self-sufficient. Um, and, you know, semiconductor, as you say, is one area that is definitely, we definitely still see a gap between um, the technology levels in China versus the U.S., uh, and I think, you know, they're well aware of that. And that's why they, they have put this as a top priority. Um, I think that this is one factor that we consider when we make our investment decisions, um, because it is something that is here to stay. Um, so we always look at, you know, how much, how reliant a company is, for instance, on um, foreign technology or foreign parts, um, because I think that is the reality um, these days. But I think the good thing is that um, most of the companies in our portfolio are, um, you know, driven by, you know, domestic demand, the domestic economy, and they're not heavily dependent on um, U.S. technology. Um, so I think over time, this situation will improve as China catches up. Um, they, they are, you know, producing, you know, a huge number of um, science and technology graduates and, and engineers. So I think in the context of all of this, innovation is still very much intact and it is supported by government policy. Well, to move, to move on to one of the other themes, which is health, what do you think is appealing about that, about this sort of sector? Why do you think it's emerged from your in investment process? Yeah, I think health is one of um, the structural trends that we're seeing in China, uh, not, not just because of COVID, but I think more generally, there's a, you know, a huge trend of rising disposable incomes. Uh, which is driving demand for healthcare products and services in China. Uh, and the opportunity set here is very diverse. So, you know, we're not just talking about you know, huge pharmaceutical companies, but our holdings include things like a leading hospital player, um, as well as contract research providers. Um, these are, you know, a bit more niche, but, you know, they're able to play on the general trend of people being increasingly aware of their healthcare needs. Uh, I think generally in China, there's also, a um, you know, we can also observe that, you know, compared to a few decades ago, um, people were a bit more, um, maybe less aware of their healthcare needs, especially in more um, niche areas such as in eye care. So if, if, you know, you aged and you have cataract, for instance, most people wouldn't be aware that you can get a cataract surgery. Um, you, they just thought going blind was a natural part of aging. Um, but I think that's that's no longer the case. And so, you know, one of our holdings specializes in this. They um, this is not something that's covered by the public healthcare system. You know, they're focused on, you know, bigger specialties such as oncology or cardiology. But for these small, um, relatively niche areas, they partner with uh, private hospital chains um, who are able to you know provide very top level services um, to the population. And that's, you know, the kind of areas where we're finding a lot of unique opportunities. I'm curious, what, what does the public healthcare sector look like in China? I mean, how, I think the impression most people have, or at least I do, is that the, the sort of social safety net that exists in the country is, is pretty small, right? There's the, you don't have that many, that many options if things go wrong. Does that, is that, I mean, is that actually the case, and particularly for healthcare, or am I, is that a complete, complete misnomer? I think it depends. China's a very big country, so 
um, you know, if if you're referring to, you know, some of the news that you saw during the pandemic of, you know, hospitals being completely overwhelmed um, and there's, you know, just a lack of hospital infrastructure in China, I think that would be the case in some lower tier cities, um, which are, you know, still developing. Um, I think that would be closer to the picture that you, you're imagining. But I think in, in big cities, um, they, they very much have a healthy and robust public healthcare system going. Um, and so, you know, perhaps they were not as prepared for, you know, such a huge demand um, as we saw during COVID. But for, for a general, you know, day-to-day um, situation, um, the infrastructure is there um, and the system, healthcare system is, is, is robust. But they definitely do still rely on, you know, public, uh, private, um, you know, drug makers or healthcare providers to, to sort of partner with them to provide some of the more um, niche healthcare services that the population might need. Yeah, so pretty similar to the rest of the world, really. Um, okay, so another another factor that I think might be driving interest in, in healthcare uh, stocks in, in the country, and I think this is true more broadly, this seems to be a, a problem, if that's the right word, uh, worldwide, where the fact that the world is getting older just means that there's you know, as you get older, you spend more money on healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, that's happening in China. We've seen, I think, since the start of the year, um, the first for the first time, the, the population is declining. I think that I think the average age now is like very late thirties, and so you have just just an increasingly elderly population. So, I mean, does, is that part of the appeal for for the sector? Um, but also, perhaps to for finish off. Do you think that has any meaningful impact on the rest of the portfolio? Um, I mean, if I think of growth investing, I tend to, you know, I would say a growing population is, is not a necessary part of that, but definitely likely to be a component of it. So does that mean you have to be a, more, a bit more selective in what you do? Is it, do you think that investing in China could ultimately become a bit like investing in Japan, where you have to you have to sort of look for companies that are benefiting from the trends rather than being having a arguably a wider group of companies to invest in. Mm. Yeah, I think when it comes to China's aging population, I would say that um, it has been you know an ongoing trend for the last couple of years. Um, so you can see the government has you know been very aware of this, and so they have you know a number of policies in place to hopefully try and raise things like the birth rate. So they had a one child policy in place for many years and um they've recently you know increased that to a two child policy in some places a three child policy so they are trying to incentivize their population to um have more children to offset the you know the, the declining um the, the the aging population but um yeah i think that's definitely something that we are aware of i think we do see that um healthcare in general is benefiting from this trend. I think one, you know, to give you one example um, within healthcare, I think localization is something that we're seeing. So for instance, for things like life support equipment or machinery, um, these used to all be imported um, and, you know, foreign foreign brand provided. But the government is encouraging hospitals to procure from local brands where possible now that quality has reached a similar level um, and prices are more attractive when, you know, obviously when something is made made domestically. Um, but I think in terms of how, you know, how this impacts our portfolio or the growth opportunities, I would say that um, the opportunity set is not the same as what it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago when China was very much a manufacturing economy um, 
you know, known as the world's factory. I think that's no longer the case. You can see that services is becoming um, an increasing contributor to GDP. It's already very large. Um, but at the same time, we see, you know, different opportunities. So we we do look for companies that can benefit from the trend of automation. So overall, I think the economy is trying to rely less on manual labor, more on automating processes, more on machine learning, um, you know, not so dependent on these labor intensive industries. So I, I don't think that, you know, we, we've had a smaller opportunity set, but I would say that the whole economy and the structure of it has changed over the last um, few decades. Um, so the way that we invest in the opportunities that we have um, will also change alongside that. Um, but I think when it comes, yeah, so, so we do have automation names in the company, um, in the trust. So I think that we are still well positioned and we, you know, definitely not facing a lack of opportunities for growth at the moment. Great. Well, on an optimistic note on which to finish. So um, thanks, everyone, for listening. If you are interested in learning more about the trust, um, as I said, we have a comparatively recent note um, on, on Aberdeen, China. So definitely go and read that to learn more more about what, what Elizabeth and her team are doing. Um, and Elizabeth, thanks, thanks very much for joining us. Hopefully we can chat again soon. Thank you for having me.